And the rest of you can join me in reading one of the most foundational passages in the absolute history of the church. Many of you know um, it was at least kind of broadly declared that last week, um, Halloween Day was not just Halloween, but it was the 500th anniversary of the, of the event which triggered the Reformation. Um, the nailing of the 95 theses, basically it's 95 tweets that were nailed to the Wittenberg door that God used to begin a process that would change the church and would change history. The passage that that change rested upon was the passage we read this morning and look at this morning. It's found in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul writes these words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This week, I was watching some of the news shows. And there were two particular interviews that struck me with the words that were spoken. The first one they were interviewing about the terrorist attack last week. The one that took place in New York. And they kept calling it a lone wolf event. Meaning that the man that was involved was acting totally on his own. And the expert that was being interviewed said that that is an absolute misnomer. He said, in the mind of that terrorist, he was not a lone wolf. But in his mind, in his thinking, he was a part of something greater and grander than what he was as an individual. That he saw himself as part of a international movement and that his actions were a part of the great outcome in his thinking of the whole movement, the whole radical jihadist movement. And because he was a part of that huge movement that was taking place, in his own thinking, he was brave enough. In our evaluation, he was evil enough to act in the way that he did. And what struck me about that quote was the, the power of sensing that I belong to something bigger than I am. 
and the ability that has to motivate actions beyond what would be normal in this case, what would be normal in an evil way. But also, that, that same sense of connectedness can motivate us in a way to do great things because we understand the value of what we do as part of something bigger and as part of something greater. That as I respond and for the believer in the name of Christ, as I respond as part of the body of Christ, as I respond as part of God's church, not Grace Community Church alone, but even more the, the, the body of Christ, the worldwide church, the, the timeless church that began at the very moment of Pentecost and will continue to the time when the Lord returns. I am a part of that if I am a believer. And it is something massive and something amazing and something that as I respond to God's glory and kingdom and purpose, I'm a part of this amazing, amazing work. I don't stand alone. Well, with that in mind, this week I was thinking about a particular interview that I'd heard several years ago. Where a man was being, he's a pastor. And he's talking about being on an airplane. And, you know, the conversation that usually takes place when you're sitting next to somebody. Hi, where are you from? Where are you going? What do you do? And this pastor realized, and I do this, I realize this too, that when somebody asks you what you do, if you ask, answer back, I'm a pastor, in this case, he's British, so he would answer back, I'm, I'm irreverent, you get the, the normal reaction, boom. And so this particular pastor came up with an amazing response. Here's his response. What do you do? And I said, well... <laughs> I work for a global enterprise. She said, do you? I said, yes, I do. I said, we've got outlets in nearly every country of the world. She said, have you? I said, yes, we have. I said, we've got hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters. I said, we do marriage work. We've got orphanages. We've got feeding programs, educational programs. I said, we do all sorts of justice and reconciliation things. I said, basically, we look after people from birth to death and we deal in the area of behavioural alteration. <laughs> She went, wow! And it was so loud, her wow, loads of people turned around and looked at us. She says, what's it called? I said, it's called the church. <laughs> really isn't it if we are a follower of Jesus wow. then we are part of a global That's enterprise right. but not only is it global it's intergalactic because it includes everyone that's gone before us wow now, I don't know who the guy is I don't know what his theology is so I'm not necessarily recommending him um, but what he says is so wonderfully profound so often we lose sight of that. 
It is so right on a communion Sunday to talk about the fact that we are united together in a work of God that is transgenerational, that is transnational, that is transracial, that is transethnic. It is a work that not only expands across the entire world, but expands across time. And we understand that part of that is because we are part of Christ. If you know Christ as your personal Savior, if you are a believer, then you are a part of this global conglomerate. But there was a second quote this week that really caused me to think. Clarence Thomas was being interviewed this week about our country. And someone asked him about, you know, thoughts and where we are as a country. And he said this. He says, you know, as a country, we have the eploribus down. But I'm not sure anymore that we understand what our unum is. Now, eploribus unum means out of many, one. And we have the idea of out of many, out of many races, out of many cultures, out of many areas, out of many, you know, uh, convictions and beliefs. We, we have the many. But he said, I'm not sure we have the one anymore. In the church, I think we struggle with that same thing. We've got the many down, especially as a Protestant kind of free church movement. We're, we have the many down. There, there are many different ways that worship will take place this morning. Some will have hymns. Some will have hymns and choruses. Some will have, you know, um, rap. Some will have no instruments. Some will, you know, there are many different ways, and that's okay. But the question becomes, what's our unum? What unites us? What draws us together? Obviously, it is our faith in Jesus Christ, but, but what, is that, what is that founded on? And I thought, last week, all last week, in fact, this wasn't the message I planned to do, but I thought, you know, the Reformation was about breaking away. In 1517, as Martin Luther nailed those, again, 95 theses, and they're just statements, literally kind of like tweets. He began not only a movement away from something, but he began a movement that united and brought together. That we are united with our fellow brothers who are in Christ. And it's based on our understanding of the gospel. What are the basic elements? The, the basic truths of, of what we are. You remember several weeks ago as Paul was dealing with the Corinthian church. One of the things that he said is you need to have the gospel right. 
You need to know the gospel. You need to know Jesus. You need to know the work of the Spirit. And as you understand those in a proper way, you have the foundation upon which this superstructure of the the church, the body of Christ, is built. And so as you think about that, you think about this. It is our shared response to the gospel to the foundation, to the, to the foundation stones that unite us in this incredible work of Christ. That unites me with the Kenyan brother that, or, or sister that seven or eight hours ago was worshiping God and together in that congregation, they were taking communion and they were talking about the bread and they were talking about the blood of Christ and the flesh of Christ and that together we are united because of that. Or I'm united with the church 18 hours ago in China where a small group of people concerned of the persecution that might come if they were found out gathered together in a home church in order to worship God and to partake of these elements. We're united by the gospel. We need to understand what that means. What are the foundations? And that's what the Reformation was all about. It was the church had corrupted what the reality, what the truth of the gospel was. And so Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Melanchthon and the other guys that were a part of that came and said, we need to understand what is this foundation? And for Luther... It was that phrase, the just shall live by faith, that began to shake things up in a way that only God could see. Now the whole thing began as God began to work through a troubled monk. If you know anything about Martin Luther, you know that He was an amazing thinker. He did some amazing things. But he was kind of a crass guy. He used to make jokes about his flatulence all the time. Some of the things that he said really upset people. Yes, he was anti-Semitic, especially towards the end of his life. And there were some struggles like that. But it was this individual in the midst of the trouble that he felt, the, the concern that he felt, that God began to move in his life. And use him to accomplish something great. You see, his turmoil, first of all, was internal. It was an awesome awareness that God's holiness requires perfection. And when he initially read Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, where it says, The just shall live by faith. You need to understand how he understood that initially. Because the church at that time did not talk about faith as my trust in Christ. It talked about faith as the beliefs and the practices of the church. The faith that I practice. And so what he was hearing was this. In order for you to be right before God. In order for you to be just before God. In order for you to be in a right relationship with God. You had to perfectly act out the faith. And Luther understood that's impossible. 
Martin Luther would spend hours every day in confession. I mean, one sent you look at him and say, what does a monk do? But he understood that even the slightest act of selfishness, of pride, of lust, was a violation of God's very holiness and sovereignty. That even the smallest sin was me saying to God, I'm God, you're not. And so for hours, he would confess, hoping that his confession would make things right enough that he could be just before God because he kept the faith in the right way. But the faith was through the church, and so his mentor, a man by the name of Stipitz, came to him and said, you know what? Martin, I think what you need is a trip to Rome. And if you go to Rome in this pilgrimage, you'll you'll gain a lot of grace. A lot of your sins will be forgiven. You can kind of add some storage to God's grace. And you'll just see the wonder of this faith we're a part of. So Luther made a trip. And his turmoil now was not only internal, but now it was external. He saw a church that was corrupt and immoral. That was more concerned about the preservation of power and wealth than it was about serving God. He saw religious leaders that were involved in adultery and involved in, in, in all kinds of sexual sins. He saw, he saw people that were involved in the leadership that were just thieves. And he said, I'm not good enough. I must depend upon that faith. And the faith that I'm a part of in his own itself is corrupt. What can I do? And the final straw was a man by the name of Tetzel. Who began to sell indulgences. And indulgences was the belief that the storehouse of grace that the church owned could be distributed to people based on the decisions of the church. And so the church said, we will distribute grace to you if you will pay us money. Now, why didn't they just distribute all the grace to everyone without the money? Well, that limits your power and your wealth. And Tetzel would come around and say, your brother, your mother, your father is in the fires of judgment. And if you will simply give to the church, that, that, will, that will buy them less days in judgment. How can you deny your mother, your brother, Your father, give. And Luther got enraged. He saw the corruption in it. And if you want to know what led to him nailing those 95 statements on that Wittenberg door, and there's some historical question as to whether he really nailed it. I mean, he did theologically, but whether he nailed it 
Literally. There's some question. I think he did. But all of it rested on an understanding. And it was this. His great enlightenment was a clear understanding of what it meant by the righteous live by faith. For you see, as Paul was writing that, he wasn't saying a perfect working out of the faith. He was saying to be right before God, there is nothing you can do. Did you hear that? To be right before God, there is nothing you can do because you will never be holy and perfect on your own. The only way to be right before God, the only way to be declared just before God is to, by faith, by trust, by embracing the reality that Jesus paid it all. Period. End of sentence. And that my acceptance, my trust, my embracing of that reality is what places me in a right relationship. Actually, it's not the faith, but it's in faith in the fact that Jesus has already accomplished it. That then allows it to be applied to me. Suddenly, Luther no longer had to spend three hours a day in confession. Suddenly, Luther was no longer concerned about the corruption of the faith he was a part of, at least in the sense of his own salvation. Suddenly, he was set free. And when confronted by the political and ecumenical power of the entire world, and asked to recant of his beliefs, he would say, apart from reason and the word of God, here I stand. I can do no other. Now, out of that, out of that verse, out of those two verses, out of that sense of the the righteous, the just will live by faith, out of that knowledge that the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed Provided from beginning to end, from first to last, through faith, out of that came five basic foundations. Five basic declarations that says, this is what unites us. This is what draws us together. This is an understanding of what the gospel is about. And those five things are often called the five solas. There are five Latin phrases that in our belief, our acceptance, in our, in our understanding, is probably a better word, of that foundation, we are united together in salvation. Now the five of them in Latin are this, it's sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Sola fide, 
which means faith alone. Solo gratia, which means grace alone. Solas Christus, which means Christ alone. And sole deo gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. That foundation, that understanding, unites us together with all who are willing to accept the declarations of Scripture, who are willing to understand the grace that is God's work and the faith that responds to it, and the one who provides it all, that is Christ, and the purpose for which it is all done to the glory of God, that's what unites us. That's what joins us with the Christian in Kenya and China and, you know, name it. We are united together. If you walk away with anything this morning, I would hope that we walk away with a sense that we are connected to a great work that God is doing. And that our eyes would not just be focused on ourselves or our family. Those are good things in our local church or even our community churches. But we would see that we're a part of something so much bigger. Last week, Dave's message was, it's not about me. It's not even about my church. It's about God's work across time and throughout the world. And we're a part of it. Now, as you look down through those foundations, the and by the way, Martin Luther never said these five statements. In fact, the five were not really put together until about the early, the late 1800s, early 1900s. But they said them sort of individually at different times in different places. And so in studying the Reformation, these are the five foundation stones. These are the, the found, this is the understanding of the gospel that unites us together. First one is sola scriptura. That scripture alone is our final authority. And what we need to understand is that the church at that time taught that the Bible and church tradition and church proclamations were of equal authority. You couldn't read the Bible and come to understand what truth was because the church had to tell you either what that meant or tell you more than was involved there. And so the church was able to say, you know what? The church is a storehouse of grace. We have all this grace that's been given to the church and we can distribute it in any way that we want. And we distribute it according sometimes by how much you're willing to pay. Martin Luther's question was, so where do you find that in Scripture? Now, what this means when we say Scripture alone, it means that only the Scriptures, carefully interpreted, are the ultimate authority for Christian teaching and practice. That if I want to understand what I'm to do as a church, what we're to be as believers... 
we go to God's word, we take a look at it in a way that is rational, and we can come to an understanding. Now, one of the things it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that creeds and councils and things aren't important or or proper methods of interpretation. It doesn't mean that, but what it means is all of those things are used to give me a proper understanding of the word of God. We're originalists. We go back to what God's word says. What did it mean? And yes, it's hard work and, you know, some, some things are easy to understand. That, that Christ is God, that salvation is because he died, that he is our sacrifice. Some things are not quite so easy. What's the meaning of communion? Is it memorial or is it, is it uh, sacramental? Or, those are areas that maybe we're not quite sure. But if we take God's word and we take just basic understanding of how to interpret a passage... In most things, in the big things, in the important things, there'll be unity. The second one is sola gratia. Grace alone is the means of salvation. The church at the time taught that people had sufficient goodness to respond to God and merit salvation. That that we could cooperate with God in the process of salvation. Yes, Jesus died to make it available to everybody, but you and I had to respond in in the right way. We had to, we were, you know, we were, we we could respond to God. But what we come to understand when you read scripture is that grace alone understands that man is incapable in and of himself To respond to God. And apart from God's work within us, we are unwilling and unable to seek him. Romans chapter 3, Paul wrote these words. There is no one. Let me emphasize the word. No one who seeks after God. In Ephesians chapter 2, as Paul was talking about salvation and coming to Christ, he says, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were a corpse. Let me just tell you something, in case you don't know this. Corpse don't respond. It's only because God works. That we respond, not because I'm good enough, not because even that I believe. Believing is only accepting what's already accomplished. It's because God works. Paul goes on and says, but because of the great love for us, I'm sorry, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. And our trespasses, sin. They understood that apart from God's work, we can't even respond. So Glace alone understands that we don't cooperate in our salvation. We simply receive it. We simply embrace what's already accomplished. 
Sola fide. Faith alone is the way to receive salvation. The church at the time taught that faith was necessary for salvation, but it, was in, but it was faith that God would save those who respond properly. So it became faith and responding properly. You could believe, but if you didn't respond properly, if you didn't do this and didn't do that, if you weren't baptized, if you weren't you know, doing these things and following this person, and if you didn't do all of this, you were not right before God. And Martin Luther understood, I can't do enough. So to that little phrase, the just shall live by faith. The understanding came that it wasn't the faith. Faith alone means faith, trusting, accepting, acknowledging, embracing, is the only response necessary to fully and completely receive the salvation provided through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I don't have to partake of communion to receive salvation. I don't have to read my Bible to receive salvation. I don't even have to pray a particular prayer. I need to accept, acknowledge, embrace. Faith alone understands that godliness and obedience are important as the result of salvation, but not the means to it. Solus Christus. Christ alone is the source of our salvation. Remember, the church at the time taught that the canonized saints had a storehouse of grace. And so if you came to them in the right way, they would give you some of the grace. That the church was a storehouse of grace. And that if you came the right way, some of that grace would be given to you. That church leaders were able to distribute grace in response to obedience or Sacrificial actions. The problem is, grace comes nowhere but from Christ and Christ alone. Christ alone means that Christ is the only source and means of receiving God's grace. That Christ alone understands that all members of the Godhead are involved in salvation, but that it is Christ and no human agent who is the mediator between God and man. I don't need a priest to give me grace. I don't need a priest to give me forgiveness. Now, we may confess our sins to one another and and through that be told about God's grace and God's forgiveness, but it doesn't come through them. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. Who is it? Christ Jesus. No one else. When you partook of communion, those serving it were not giving you grace. 
when you confess to a brother or sister a sinner or a struggle in your life, they're not giving you grace. They may represent the grace God has given. It's only through Christ. And then finally, solus deo gloria. God's glory is the only goal of salvation. The church at the time taught that since the church shared in the distribution of grace, they also shared in the glory of providing salvation. And so if I pursued the glory of the church, it was the same as pursuing the glory of God. Not necessarily. If the church is corrupt, they may be in opposition. If grace is doing things that are wrong and it's not the same to pursue the, 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 the honor of grace if it's moving in the wrong direction. So the reformers understood that God alone is to be glorified as the sole provider of salvation. And to him alone we express our gratitude through obedience and pursuit of his kingdom. We seek to proclaim and magnify God, not the church and its leaders. Grace Community Church believes those five things. It makes us part of a great movement of God as God took those truths, and was the Reformation perfect? No. Did it have problems? Yes. Was it misused in ways to create, you know, the, the, the sort of rationalistic um, um, attitudes of people today? Yes. And, and there were problems with it. But those foundations are solid. And so we're not alone. God's word declares that all who in response to God's revelation receive salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ are chosen to be part of this great work of God. The orphanage that years ago I was part of a mission team that helped to build in Nicaragua do you know y'all are part of that? Because we're a part of this great work. The work that's being done in Haiti through poverty resolution, not only by our trips going down there, yes, but just as being part of the work of God. We're part of what God is doing. We're connected with churches around the world and we're connected with churches from the very moment of the establishment of Pentecost to the day when the Lord returns. We proclaim his work until he comes. We're not alone. We're not alone as an individual believer. We're not alone as a church. We're, we're not alone even in time. And when you look around and you see all of these things taking place and how God is working, our response is, God, thank you for making me a part of it. So what's your job? 
What do you do? I'm part of an international conglomerate that ministers from people from birth to death, that provides housing and medical care and food because God has made me a part of his work and we will glorify and praise him for it for eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can simply be a part of that work by trusting your son as our personal savior. Father, thank you that you work through man to restore an understanding of what salvation is really all about and its source and its means of appropriating it to our lives. Father, if there's someone here, as we mention each Sunday morning, who isn't certain of that relationship, that, Father, they would come and speak to somebody, talk to me or someone else, about how they might know for certain that they're a part of that great work that you are doing. And Father, encourage us, lift us up, build us up. Remind us that because of your grace, because of the faith you gave us to respond, we can be a part of this amazing thing that you are doing. And we pray it all in the name of your Son. Amen.